Welcome to the Omni Gamers Club podcast. This is Mark Uesa. And this is Daniel Winter. We're two fans of board games, video games, and much more. Well, hello, Daniel. This is our fourth episode now. Yeah, it's almost become a, a routine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is a, a second, uh, the second video game we're covering. But before that, let's talk about what have you been playing, good sir? Oh, a little bit of everything, as is our way. Uh, on the digital front, I've been playing a little bit of uh, Humankind, the new game from... Uh, I think I don't know if it's some connection to the old makers of Civilization, but it's, it's definitely a Civilization-like. So about halfway through my first game of that. Uh, I've been playing Psychonauts 2 on the Xbox, uh, which has been a long time coming. I'm nearly done with that and enjoying that a lot so far. Uh, on the game board game table, I've been actually getting back into Magic the Gathering, uh, I'm, I'm afraid to say. Uh, I've dabbled in the past, but uh, started to get back into that again. Let's see. For me, the game that's been taking up a lot of my time is Craftopia. It's pretty new on Xbox Game Pass, playing it on PC, and uh, it's just really, it's it's a game design for me. I love survival crafting games, I like systems, it's a lot of fun, and I've even got, gotten my nine-year-old kid into it, so that's been cool to share a game together. Aside from that, I have my like regular batch of digital board games that I play. I've been playing Res Arcana, Arnak some more, and uh, trying out some newer games like New Frontiers have, has just hit Board Game Arena, so that's been a lot of fun too. Yeah, I, I joined you for that. It's been, I finally uh, experienced all of the games in that Race for the Galaxy series now. <laughs> yeah, New, New Frontiers is fun. I wouldn't say it's revolutionary, but it, you know, it definitely has a nice uh, Puerto Rico-style vibe to it. It flushes out the card game a little more. That was, uh, yeah, it was a nice touch. Shall we uh, have another icebreaker question? Learn a little bit more about us. Sure, bring it. <laughs> Great. Okay, so the question is from me this time. What is the first uh, video game you played, or what video game made you a video game player for life? Hmm, well, the first one, I mean, I was actually I was only five years old, I think it was, when my grandmother gave me my first console, the Nintendo Entertainment System. I don't know whether it was called over in um, in the states here. Was it the Famicom? No, it was the NES in the in North America. And oh, it was okay. Famicom in Japan. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, yes, yeah, so NES. Uh, unfortunately, the, the game she got for me was RoboCop. Probably a little inappropriate for a five-year-old. Uh, didn't never got much out of that game. Uh, don't think we ever beat the first level, uh, and it got taken back pretty quickly and replaced with Super Mario Brothers. So uh, wasn't quite my first game, but very close to it. Uh, and I, I played a few games on the NES, but I think it was really the, the Super Nintendo where the love of video games really took off with Super Mario World and Yoshi's Island and Donkey Kong Country. It sounds like we started playing video games around the same time. I, I definitely dabbled a bit at, you know, friends of family, friends, houses and things with ColecoVision and Atari. But I think my like my first console that really felt like my own was um, the Sega Master System. Yes, I was a master. Ah, the enemy. <laughs> uh, I didn't really feel like it was the enemy. I just felt like <laughs> it, uh, like that was the games you know I played. Like I have really fond memories of some of those games. Um, primarily, uh, Wonder Boy. I don't know if you recall that series, Wonder Boy and Monsterland. It was this really sneaky 
proto Metroidvania uh, with a, a, some like RPG and upgrading mechanisms in it. Wonder Boy in Monsterland, I think, was the one that really did it. And uh, I actually think they've done some re-releases recently. Like there's Wonder Boy um, has had um, some modern refreshes lately, so I, I should check those out. Yeah, I feel like I played one of those on Switch a couple of years ago. Like they completely redid the animation. Uh, that I don't think I got very far in it, but it was a, it was beautiful animation. For like the, the the remaster. Yeah, for sure. They've done a good job with those remakes, so I, I really should check them out. My memory's kind of hazy for those days, so I, I don't know exactly. You know what my first first video game was. I played Dragon Warrior. I was probably my first RPG on uh, NES. And I played games like, I don't know, Mon- Legend of Monkey Island, Secret of Monkey Island on the PC and, you know, Lemmings, uh, amazing, you know, real-time strategy game, if you want to call it that, which is uh, <laughs> ties into the game we're talking about today. So some great memories. Our family computer was unfortunately a Mac, which was very limited on the PC front, but Lemmings was one of the few we did have. So <laughs> I remember those days well. Oh, it's a classic. I want to go back to that one soon. <laughs> Well, uh, why don't we get on to the main part of today's episode? Absolutely. This week, we're talking about the PC game Iron Harvest. Uh, I think the, the subtitle for that is Iron Harvest 1920 plus. 1920 plus being the universe world that it's set in, uh, the creation of um, the artist Jakub Rozowski, who some many of you will know from the board game Scythe. Jakub had created a, a bunch of um, beautiful illustrations set in this. There's all this world building going into it, and both the board game Scythe and Iron Harvest both pull from that inspiration. So this is developed by King Art Games and published by Deep Silver. King Art Games, uh, you might know them from uh, games like the Unwritten Tales, uh, Point and Click Adventure System, and another title called The Dwarves, which I've considered playing. Um, it looks kind of cool. This game, like uh, Yaka Brozowski's uh, art would indicate, is sort of set in this diesel punk alternate history world around the 1920s, like an alternate Great Wars period. Really cool uh, setting, really cool art for sure. That's undeniable. Uh, shall we get into the particulars? Sure, let's uh, dive in. Uh, Daniel, what type of game is this? Right, so Iron Harvest is an uh, RTS or real-time strategy game. Uh, it's we don't see much of those these days. Uh, they were quite popular back in the what, early 2000s, I guess? Uh, but you don't see many of them these days. It's a sort of top-down strategy game where you're controlling various units across a, uh, a battlefield, usually. Uh, usually quite sort of warfare-focused. Uh, controlling units, uh, building up a base of various buildings to, to maintain those units, and very much focused on sort of managing your units and armies across across this map and sort of micromanaging them to take over the uh the enemy base 
RTSs definitely are still going today, but the, of late they've sort of been dominated by major players in in the genre, like of course the eight hundred pound gorilla of you know StarCraft and StarCraft Two, even WarCraft Three, all from Blizzard Entertainment, were obviously huge hits that um, have great big following. Well, I mean the the modern uh, phenomenon of, of MOBAs, I guess, is very much driven from like it's an evolution of rts's it's the same sort of perspective that top down angle uh controlling units but where whereas mobas were very much mobas are much more about focusing on one particular unit like each player is controlling one unit whereas rts's you're very much controlling an army of of multiple units for sure yeah there's uh, lots of comparable games you can call out and there's there's a whole range of rts's too they're not all the same some are you know very tight and squad based and some are very large and army based but uh, you know if you recall company of heroes command and conquer age of empires 2 uh, there's even some more modern like sci-fi ones you can name uh, any of those and you'd be hitting the right genre there I mean, do you, what was your history with with the genre? Have you played many of these in the past? Uh, RTSs, I would say, is a weak part of my gaming portfolio. I have always been fascinated by them conceptually. Um, I'm just not any darn good at them. <laughs> and, <laughs> I relate to that a lot. <laughs> and, right. So it's probably a genre I, I like tooling around in. I like clicking around in, but I was never any good, not competitive, and I'm not knowledgeable in an expert sort of way. Probably the one that was most formative to me was um, the Age of Empires series. Is Age of Empires one and two, the unit types, the the strategies, the um, sound effects are still burned into my brain. Yeah, I've never played any of the uh, Age of Empires series, but I've been uh, curious to to dip my toes into that, especially with the upcoming sequel, Age of Empires Four. But I, I similarly uh, have always been curious with the genre, uh, but never really got a foothold with it just it felt like the pacing and the micromanaging required was a little bit too much for me (laughs) it just really triggers my anxiety uh but that said the the one that i that was really quite formative uh in my my teenage years was i played a lot of warcraft 3 mostly for the the campaign uh it was very much an rts meets uh rpgs a lot of role-playing elements really introduced the concept of having hero units in 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 a in, a, uh, in, in an RTS. Uh, I played a bit of Warcraft three as well, and obviously Blizzard Entertainment uh, before Activision back then was always very strong in in uh, role playing games. Hello Diablo, anyone? So of course, um, yeah, they were revolutionary. Uh, they they pushed that sort of you know hero competitive game like even before the rise of first person hero shooters or anything like that. Like the the heroes in uh, Warcraft 3 were really, really um, influential. And uh, you can feel that legacy carried on th- in this game, Iron Harvest, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So with that said, why don't we uh, get into the weeds on Iron Harvest? Sure. So for Iron Harvest, clearly there's so- sort of two sides to it. There's uh, the campaign side, uh, very narrative driven, linear, obviously. There's a start to it and there's an end to it. And it's broken down into missions, campaigns, if you will. The conceit of the game is that you do multiple campaigns and each one tackles one or two specific characters based on one of the 
what is it? The four factions, the four main factions of the three in the base game. There might be an extra one in an expansion, I believe. Right. So each campaign focuses on a particular hero. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say the hero for the very first campaign, the Polonian is our good friend, Anna and her good friend, Wojtek, as I learned uh, it's pronounced the war bear from Scythe, which uh, I think you've played a lot of as well, right? Yes, yeah, I was uh, one of the first Kickstarter backers <laughs> on, on side, uh, so a big, big fan of that game. So yeah, all, all about Anna and Voitech. Yeah, I played a lot of Scythe, the base game, both digital and physical. Actually, not just the... I played a lot of Invaders as well. I think I played the airships once. Well, I mean, there's also the... There was the uh, sort of mini legacy campaign for Scythe called uh, Rise of Fenris, which I've not played, but uh, I I imagine plays quite... The story of that plays a bit into Iron Harvest because there was a couple of uh, familiar names popped up. I played the first game of Fenris, and it did seem intriguing. But I didn't play enough of it. My memory is not strong enough to speak about that. Yeah, and this campaign was good. It's start you at ground zero. So maybe if you listening haven't played an RTS before, a little nervous about getting into one, you might find this interesting because it, it starts off as intimately as you can get. Like, this is not a spoiler either. It's the very first mission. But you start off with Anna as a child. She is playing around with, you know, her friends from the village, uh, friends, quote unquote, because they're they're all Eastern European boys from the early 20th century, and they're all picking on her because she's a girl. So they have you control Anna as a child playing a snowball fight. And I thought it was absolutely charming. Really, really intimate, tight storytelling in, you know, an RTS engine, which is remarkable. And it took me right back to another strategy title, which I fondly remember. It's the, uh, maybe someone else will remember the tutorial mission from Final Fantasy Tactics Advance 2, which also was based around a snowball fight. I thought that was a really nice touch. Huh, I've never played those, but I have heard amazing things. Uh, I mean, I was reminded of uh, the snowball fight in uh, Red Dead Redemption. No, sorry, not Red Redemption. The Last of Us 2. <laughs> it was a snowball fight in that. Uh, no, maybe not, it's not a trope. RTS, obviously. <laughs> it's, a t- it's a tutorial trope. It's, it's the trope of uh, 2020, apparently. <laughs> nice. It really does ease you in where you're just controlling that one unit so to to get used to the the basics and you're spending those first couple of levels just with her. So it it does ease you in, but it does ramp up the difficulty quite quickly with taking on uh, additional units and soldiers and uh, Wojtek, as you mentioned. But mind you, Wojtek does, does basically just control you himself. He's just, he's attached to Arna. You don't sort of control him independently. Yeah, those first couple of missions give you a good idea of the basic mechanics of the game, but not really a huge amount of the strategy involved. I thought it did a good job of easing you in. You are with Anna, you have Wojtek, and you like pick up six guys. And then you reach two-thirds across the map, and then you pick up another six guys. And then you go to a mission two and mission three, and you pick up another dozen guys. And then, you know, by the end of her campaign, you're controlling whole, you know, battalions. But it, the narrative and the strategy and the uh, tutorialization has it all tied in for it to really be a sort of a really nice arc. That part they did well, narratively speaking. And, you know, it has its stereotypical tropes of this country bumpkin person who's naive to war becomes the military general. 
Oh yes, it's definitely a, pre- a predictable story. Uh, it'll be uh, well written, I think. I mean, there are some twists that you may or may not see coming, but uh, I mean, a pretty pretty tropey <laughs> but and it remind me of a few other uh rts twists in fact but i, I think the, the the writing and the the, the characterization is, is well written enough to to carry it what, what did you think about the the polonian campaign missions overall I mean, it, it mixes up things quite a, uh, a bit you've got your wandering through a, a, a map collecting units type levels you've got your build up a, a base type levels there are, there are some that are quite dynamic where you'll spend the first half sort of traversing a map and and sort of gradually gaining ground and then at some point you'll dig down and build a base and defend that point and it sort of things are it often has two or three different sort of stages to a singular level and it's really using that space for multiple different purposes which i found quite clever but I mean, the, the pacing that it does is it, quite tricky because I mean, those first couple of levels are quite forgiving. If you lose all your units, you just go back to town and get some more. But beyond that, it can be quite punishing. Uh, I was surprised to see a lot of people, in fact, um, talk about one of the highlights of the game being the train level from the first Polonia mission, where you're sort of escorting this train through these mountainous overpasses and, and to, to sort of fighting through some sort of enemy bases and I, I like it's, it's a great sort of setting but I found it extremely punishing in terms of if, if you lose so much as one unit there's no way of getting more so you have to refresh and or so reload and start again and that was really a learning experience and well okay I need to be <laughs> saving and reloading quite regularly here uh right to to, to, to save myself because you if you lose like I said you only have something like three units if you lose one well there's no point going on any further. It's <laughs> right. only going to get harder from there. Like many RTS games, quick save and quick load are your friends. Learn those hotkeys very quickly. And and that that mission in particular, the the train one that you mentioned, is very divisive. Like I have my opinions about it. I thought it was a really cinematic mm, definitely. concept. It's like classic war movie, right? I thought the production values of it were quite nice. The level design was quite nice but wasn't much of an escort mission at all because you sort of had to clear the path and you could just pull the train up anytime you wanted to there wasn't really big risks of it getting ambushed but being <laughs> left behind that i felt anyway with a lot of the missions to be quite honest it just ended up really being a case of trial and error did you feel like you had a lot of creative control while you were playing out the the original missions not necessarily no i mean if you're going to attack a base there's, there's usually an arbitrary back path to get to it. If you, so you either take, you attack from the front or you take the back path, but it didn't really have much of a, a tactical distinction, whichever you did. I mean, you could uh, split your forces up and sort of distract them from the front if, and have the, pin, the classic pincer movement. But mechanically, they all, it kind of felt like it's played the same. I, I guess one thing we should discuss is one thing that this game does distinguish itself in is having multiple unit types like you've got your basic infantry unit but then you you equip them with various weapons to change what type of attacks they have whether it's a grenadier or an anti-armor gunner or a machine gunner but it didn't really feel like there was a great feedback as to what the benefits what the pros and cons of each unit was so let's touch on upon that a little bit more. Like you said, you start with a very small range of unit types, the sort of the ranger, and then I think engineer is one of the early ones that you get. 
you can open up these supply crates. You can have any of your units pick up that equipment. Like just say it's for a medic, it's a medical bag. If it's a grenadier's, it's, it's a grenade. And when they pick up that equipment, they just become, they just morph into that unit type. And uh, I really appreciated that because I felt like that gave me, even in the missions that I couldn't base build, it gave me a lot of agency in how I kitted up my squad. So that that I appreciated a lot. Yeah, it's definitely a clever system. Uh, as you say, it's it's much more dynamic. You take a, a, a group of low-level infantry units out into the field, you take over a few... Like you, you, you kill a few units, and suddenly they, they're dropping different types of weapons that you can sort of gradually upgrade your your infantry. Or if your needs suddenly change, if there's suddenly a lot more mechs on the field, you can find some anti-armor weapons and equip those to change what you need without going back to base and building new uh, units. The triumvirate of the soldier, the medic, and the engineer is pretty self-explanatory. I felt like I was using those a lot. Grenadier is a little bit, you know, more situational. Cavalry, definitely. There wasn't much of that at all. Although there was one key character that was a strong cavalry unit. And, you know, you can definitely see the the potential of that. But you're right. It was a slow burn, the initial missions. I think what those missions did really well was they presented a lot of, like, situational variety. They had, you know, very exploration-heavy missions. They had that escort mission we talked about. And then they had some larger missions that were about taking and holding key strategic points. Those were the most interesting ones, if a little bit hectic. There was a couple of key examples of where you had to sort of take over a target. Uh, Let's just call it a train station. And then you, you feel so proud of your achievement of taking over or maybe just relief because of the frustration of how many times I died taking it over. And then the very next mission is you have to turn around and defend it for an oncoming attack. So I, I, I like that. I like the symmetry of that. Absolutely. Like I said, the, using those same uh, spaces for multiple different objectives and sort of flipping the table on you was quite clever. The one thing I struggled with, though, was especially when in defense missions, it would say, okay, enemies attacking in two minutes, but not really tell you which direction they're coming from. <laughs> and so you're not sure where to build your defenses or what to focus on, um, just, sort of <laughs> just scurrying around like ants trying to, to face every direction to, just in case they come from over there. Uh, but perhaps we're bearing the lead a bit in terms of talking about all this uh, infantry strategy. I think the main focus here for most people is going to be the big mechs. They definitely introduce a couple of types of mechs in your faction in the uh, early part of the campaign. Of course, you unlock a lot more in multiplayer, and you see the opponent's mechs. But what did you think about the, the mechs in the Polonian campaign? Again, they, they present you with various options with not a lot of distinction on how they function differently uh, other than through trial and error. But from what I did experience of them, they, they were quite fun to play with and all and did seem quite distinctive. There's the, the giant sort of walking tin can that runs around very fast uh, that I, I quite like. It was sort of like a... They're weaker, but they're, they're, they're basically the fastest unit you can get short of having any cavalry. Uh, there's the sort of squat sort of spider type one that seems like pretty well rounded there's the giant uh gunner that sort of buries itself in it moves very slowly across the map and has to burrow in to to, to, to fire so there there was quite a few different options with those and plus you've got the the leader mechs uh like is it is it lek the uh uncle 
Anna's uncle, I found. Yeah, I think he, that's right. Yeah, he has uh, like this giant sort of, it's, a, it's like a giant sphere, basically, that he's sitting in the middle of. But it really, it it's basically moves around like a gorilla, sort of lumbers right. around. A sphere with gorilla arms is pretty funny to look at. <laughs> but it, it does feel very distinctive, just the way it moves and sort of lumbers around. You really got a feel for these sort of sort of barely held together and, and lumbering around like they, they do feel very distinctive yeah the, the mech designs are definitely a shining aspect of the game obviously from the, uh, the, the inspiration material i would say on the polonian side those three mechs that you mentioned are very um stereotypical very you know conservative but they worked there's the clear usage for each, each of them they were easy to use and easy to utilize them strategically and then based on the opponents who you face, you got to see a lot more unit variety and a lot more creativity in their special abilities when they're deployed on you, which I thought was also cool as well. So that that's definitely a plus uh, to this game. Speaking of special abilities, though, I think that was one of the things that really let me down, uh, but both in the infantry and the mechs. I mean, once like infantry units don't really have any kind of abilities that like nothing that you can really activate once you're in battle so once you, you once Very you're in a few. firefight there's not much you can do to change the outcome of that other than retreat if things go badly and even the sorry, Anna definitely has some bespoke ones she has at least a couple of special abilities um, and, and I, I presume all of the leaders do Anna just has a, a snipe button that lets you do a bunch of damage to one unit which is powerful but Fairly boring, I thought. Lek had a had, had more interesting ones that let him leap around and charge into enemies. But most of the, the the sort of mechs that have sort of movement abilities, I found pretty unreliable. Uh, it was really hard to get feedback as to how they were interacting, or, or they just get stuck on terrain, wouldn't really activate properly. Uh, even stuff like the, the train level doesn't communicate that like the train can has a gun on it. I, it took me several attempts to even realize that you could use the train itself as a weapon. Maybe I just didn't read the tutorial properly, but it feels like there was some things that just weren't communicated very well. I didn't pick up on that very much either, so I don't think it was just you. I didn't finish this game. I didn't play all the campaigns. I only played through the first one, so it could very well be that the later campaigns are more hands-on more in depth more detailed with their uh, instruction but the first one i feel like uh, it glossed over some details like base building for instance so we both played through the first campaign and then we tried out multiplayer i felt very <laughs> ill-equipped in how to yeah, build I don't out think my we have base much to talk about in terms um, of just... multiplayer anyway <laughs> so we played one game together and it it was over pretty quickly, but neither of us felt like we were <laughs> being particularly uh, clever in, in that play. So the game type, I think there's three main game types. Um, the one, first one is is called Domination. I think it's the um, basically the, the deathmatch one, other, right? Other, yeah, the player's base. Yeah. Last one standing, essentially. Uh, the one we actually played was called Drop Zone. It, it was kind of interesting because the premise is that you're in this symmetrical uh, battleground there are these periodic supply drops, airdrop these pallets into random places throughout the map. I didn't think there was any rhyme or reason to the no, where I mean, they dropped. To me, Did it looked like they were dropping more on your side of the map. It didn't feel very fair. Uh, maybe I was just not missing it, because that's, that's like the only way of knowing where they are is like there's little pings coming up on your notifications, but if you miss that, there's no indication on the map where, where they are. I mean, on, on, the, on the mini map, if, you, if you're standing right. in the spot, then there's like a, a, a flare shooting off but if you're not standing in that spot right. and you miss the notification then there's no way of scanning the map and seeing where those drops are 
the fog of war obscures where the the supply drops are. I think you're right. I, I feel like the supply drops were pretty hot and heavy on my side of the map early in the game. And I feel like they dried up in the latter half. That's felt very random, and then perhaps it is. Uh, essentially, you pick up VP for each one of these supply drops that you you gain. So I thought that was kind of a nice touch, a nice allusion to the the this game's board game roots. You know, VP victory points is very much a board game mechanism. So I felt that was a cute little touch there when you could have, you know, handled it, you know, differently, like flags <laughs> or something like that. It was a good, good little callback. Yeah, uh, I mean, I had fun in that, but it's definitely not the sort of thing I'd focus on uh, in, in RTSs in general. I said that that, that real time, you constantly have to be on and and micromanaging everything and and you can't you can't pause you can't stop you just have to keep moving and like micromanaging all of your units it just uh it triggers my anxiety a little bit to be honest so it's, it's never going to be my focus i i much prefer the the campaign where you can just sort of yeah. take your time and I, the, the, the classic uh zerg strategy just right camp everyone on your base build up your units as much as possible and then just roll them out in one big mass <laughs> You know, there is some depth to the multiplayer in the sense that you have some some risk-reward sort of things. Like, you definitely want to take over as many resource points as you can. That's pretty standard RTS fare. So you take over the oil um, stations and you pick up the iron mines. Essentially, those become sort of uh, assets that you fight over. In that particular game mode wasn't the focus, but uh, it ultimately it feeds into your your war engine. And then there's the types of buildings you need to produce. <laughs> I asked you this particular question during our multiplayer game because I still don't know what limits the unit limit. <laughs> the unit limit was very, very low. And I didn't, you know, in other games like Age of Empires, it's very, very obvious what ties to the unit limit. It's just houses. It's very, very clear. And it was super unclear what the buildings did in this particular game. How yeah, did you I think feel we both about made that? the same mistake of just mass building a bunch of barracks trying to figure out how to improve that number and just never just never figured it out uh because there's only really a couple of units a couple of types of buildings you can build especially in in this game mode where we weren't focused on attacking each other's base like so building defensive buildings in in our base wasn't really much as much of a focus so you could really just focus on getting those effect like the building that lets you build infantry and the building that lets you build mix and that's all you need really one each of those and you're good to go right that begs the question like if that's the strategy why don't you just both start with those buildings (laughs) right if that's the only strategy then that's just a waste of time building up to that point you just let i mean it's fair to say that we really experienced the uh the breadth of strategy there is to find in this game after after this that one of us wailing away at each other Okay, f- feel free to say it. You did win. Yeah, b- barely. It was it was a, it was a close match. <laughs> I had an early lead, but uh, it, it got dwindled away. Right. So we didn't play very much multiplayer. I didn't feel super attracted to it. I feel like if you like the mechs and you like RTSs, you will gain something out of learning those factions and seeing the varieties of units that they have on offer. If you like those two things, you'll probably find something that shines in this game. Yeah, as far as the the multiplayer goes, it's it's a pretty rote game. I don't know that the mechs really change things that much for the the strategy, but they they do add quite a a lot of flavor to the the campaign, I think, is where they really shine. 
you know, even if they don't add a lot of variety, you, you look good killing your your. I opponents, did miss right? a little bit of the perhaps the, the the variety of the of the world building compared to something like Scythe, where even in the both in Scythe and the uh, the artwork of Jakob, like you very much, it's very uh, agrarian, focusing on like the farmlands and the and the, the peasants and like harvesting the fields and everything, and the mechs are really just background. Like even in Scythe, which is a ostensibly a war game, I mean, it's very much the mechs are a threat that you don't really like. It's more the threat of, of of warfare rather than fighting constantly. Like combat is is pretty rare in Scythe, and so Iron Harvest here is really focusing on just that one element, and I did feel a, a little lack in and some of those other elements of the world building. But obviously, it's it's this type of game you're not going to really expect much else uh, i thought the the very first couple of emissions of the second campaign the Rusviet campaign showed some promise you know it kind of reset the story refocused on a couple of different characters and gave a different perspective it was a nice change of pace from what was a very agrarian uh, setting that the the first campaign started off with. So I think there there probably is some more variety in the nearly thirty hour campaign that the game promises. I only played the first mission of that second campaign as well, so there's still a lot more to see in the game, uh, and, and that's where that really is one of the benefits of this sort of format in uh, RTS campaigns similar to uh, like Warcraft 3 did it and, uh, and Starcraft and I'm sure some of the others do, but it was each so the, the, the single player campaign being cut up into smaller segments, each one focusing on a different faction. And you're basically getting segments of the same story from different perspectives. So you you really are experiencing each side of, of the war and then getting different, different perspectives into that. So that, that that's always appreciated, I think. We haven't touched upon it yet, but the story is mostly driven by cutscenes, uh, which are essentially all in-game engine and in-game assets. But they did a fairly good job with what they had. You'd think with a, a RTS engine that was that's isometric, you wouldn't be able to pull off very cinematic scenes, but they actually did. They had some nice classic war movie type shots, dolly shots along the train tracks with you know mechs and horses and humans crashing and explosions happening and they did a pretty good job i would say yeah i think the the animations felt a little dated like it felt felt like the resolution felt felt very low sort of uh, low poly assets but they were all they were actually right. like animated and framed quite nicely the storytelling was was quite quite well written i thought so they, they did it did still sell the sort of setting i think they had a very ambitious story that they were telling and there were some uh, niggling points. Like you said, the human character models are very, very low poly. I thought the the mech models were a hilarious contrast when put next to <laughs> the humans. because the, the, mechs, the uh, budget went. <laughs> right. They, they spent the first three quarters of their dev cycles <laughs> on, the, on the mechs and then gave up after that. No, I'm joking, of course. But the mechs look fantastic. Characters look passable. Sound effects were a little annoying. Not very repetitive callouts. That was mostly how I felt about it. Very quite a workmanly game. I think there's some fun to be had there. I think there's some cool scenes and some set pieces and art. Definitely, the production art is great. No, it's more glossy and obviously more video gamey than Jakob's original artwork. So, if you're hoping for a impressionistic 
oil painting come to life, you're not going to have that. But the inspiration is nice and clear. I was curious to ask if you're familiar with the term Eurojank. I have definitely heard you say it before. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds pejorative, similar to like a merry trash, but I think it's it's mostly used uh, in, in in good regards. It, it, it's basically this sort of uh, refers to this categorization of games of low with a re- relatively low budget and lack of polish uh, that I think this falls into pretty well. I mean, it, it's I know it's been often said that there's not much of a, a mid tier of games anymore you've got your triple a's you've got your indie darlings and there's not very much more in the middle but i think uh eurojank as a category definitely uh is, is one of the bigger examples of that and it's, it's a lot of the the ui issues and like I said, some of the communications and and the the, the the low poly animations and things like that but at the same time while having interesting mechanics and ideas behind it just without the budget to really make it shine and rough off those uh those edges well i wouldn't call it euro jank i mean i think every country uh, has (laughs) janky games and i actually kind of like that i think that's charming i I prefer game studios that are creative and try ambitious things than don't try Mm -hmm. ambitious things and do highly polished safe things cough cough ubisoft (laughs) But there's lots of Japanese games are janky. Lots of American games are janky. Like uh, one of our shared favorites, Bethesda. So many of their <laughs> games come out broken, and they're they're That's all the better for it. Right? Right you, get, <laughs> you get some hilarious giants tossing you into the air or, or something like that. In Skyrim, it's great. So for Iron Harvest, I'll say there's nice moments to be had. I think there's a lot of variety if you put in the time. I myself, it didn't interest me enough because quite honestly, I'm not a huge RTS fan. So for me, this was a great taste of that genre, which I respect and I appreciate, but it was just not my own. On top of that, it tells an interesting story in a cool world. And the music was very good. I thought it was very, very uh, appropriate. And um, we didn't mention yet, but there's some cool destructibility of the environment. Much to my chagrin, I want to be all stealthy. I just bowl my mech right through a, <laughs> a, a whole city block, hoping nobody notices it. Or destroy the, the cover that you literally just built. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But that's cool, though. That's ambitious. And I, I like that they yeah, went there. Yeah, some cool features. I, I, I do think it's, it's, it's a good game uh, if, if this is your type of thing. Uh, it's not quite enough to hold my attention, just like the trial and error required and... But uh, there, there is some really interesting uh, nuggets in there in between the story and, and, and mechanical. The one thing it's definitely made me want to do is play some more RTS games. So, so Daniel, if you're willing to bear with me, I think that you and I should play some Age of Empires 2 remastered. Yes, yeah, so I think I might even already have that installed. Uh, but Age of Empires 4 is also just around the corner. So I'm sure we'll squeeze one of those in, in the near future. Got to play number two, man. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> I think I, I think I got a copy of that in a cereal box <laughs> back in the two thousand sometime. Classic retro, uh, <laughs> retro feeling. It's it's nice sometimes. Great. Would you like to announce our next episode's game? Sure. Well, of course, uh, next episode we're back to the board game table. So we're gonna, going to be looking at Architects of the West Kingdom, uh, game by. Shem Phillips uh, at Garpill Games, uh, the first in the trilogy, the, the West Kingdom trilogy, uh, it's Architects, Paladins, and Viscounts of the West Kingdom. 
and it's available on Tabletopia, I think it was, if anyone else wants to, to play that before the podcast. You and I have played a number of games of that now, a couple in digital and even one in person recently. Yeah, that's that's a first. We're now able to, to game in person. It's a good feeling. Well, <laughs> let's just keep the let's hope the numbers uh, keep low for the near future. And then we have a little bit of more news, right? We would like to give away a brand new board game, a newly released board game to one of our listeners, a game called Cascadia. You and I have played it recently, Daniel, and it's by Randy Flynn. Very fantastic tile-laying game with some you know, pattern creation and very fam- family-friendly stuff. I think you guys should definitely try it out. And how exactly can people win this game, Daniel? Yeah, so uh, so Idia is a fantastic game. It's been sitting on my shelf here as well, and I've been playing through some of the solo scenarios. And and I've also got a uh, a video review out from last year. I I had a copy of the prototype about a year ago to this day, I think. So if you wanted to know more about that, you can look that up. But uh, to enter the giveaway, all you have to do is email us at omnigamersclub at gmail.com or uh, on our website. We have a little web form there that will go straight to that. In the email description, just give the keyword scythe. And that's scythe like the board game. It's scythe like the um, the farming tool. Look it up. However you want to spell it, it's fine. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess we'll give uh, we'll probably announce that on the next episode we record. So we'll have a couple of weeks to get those entries in. Yeah, try out Architects of the West Kingdom before you listen to our very next episode. We'd love to hear your questions and comments as well. If you have any feedback, again, email us at, uh, at omnigamersclub at gmail.com or uh, we're on Twitter and there's a Facebook page now. Uh, so yeah, feel free to contact us with any questions or comments. Maybe you can help us create a uh, tagline, a catchphrase for our outro. <laughs> I mean, that could be a next giveaway. Yeah, so I'm going to awkwardly say until next time, see you at the game table. And remember to have a balanced gaming diet. <laughs> I like it. I'm going to work a bit. <laughs> remember to have a balanced diet of your... G- g- oh, God. <laughs> Outtake. <laughs>